0: Welcome back to the second part in this Therapeutic Parenting podcast special from the COECT's November 2021 conference with me, Serena Gay, and a host of expert speakers. If you missed this Solihull gathering of parents and professionals from the world of fostering and adoption, don't worry, because you can catch up on a lot of what happened through these three special conference podcasts. You can also access recordings of the live speeches and discussions from the COECT website. In this episode, we're going to talk to Daniel Thrower and Sir Penner, who presented on the theme of strategies for school survival. Secondly, we'll be going over to the speakers on the unique challenges of kinship care and special guardians. Daniel Thrower is the CEO of the Wensum Trust, a not-for-profit education trust with 11 non-selective, free-to-attend schools across Norfolk. The trust features two Ofsted outstanding-rated schools, seven good-rated schools, and it's been chosen by the Department for Education to lead one of only 34 English hubs nationwide. And that means it supports all primary schools across Norfolk. But why would its CEO be invited to speak at a conference for therapeutic parents and professionals? Well, over to Daniel.
1: What we've done, we've moved away from behaviorist approach. We've got each and every member of staff, teachers, TAs, site team, admin team, trained in emotion coaching, which is an approach in education which basically moves away the behaviours approach where we actually start to understand behaviour as communication. We try and unpick that behaviour in order for the child to feel safe and secure, you know, and give them the very best opportunity for that academic learning to actually come on stream. What we know is unless a child feels safe and secure and their mental health and wellbeing is in the right place, children are not going to learn. And that is almost the polar opposite of what a lot of schools are doing. They're focusing too much on teaching and learning rather than actually making sure the child and the family are in a good place. Their, their basic needs are being met because we know from all the neuroscience, unless the child's basic needs are met, the cognitive part of the brain is not going to come on stream and they're not going to learn.
0: So, Daniel, could you just then talk us through what you actually had to say um, about the challenges and struggles that schools are facing with coping with children from traumatised backgrounds? Yeah.
1: Well, certainly, you know, there's a significant need moving. The need is getting never great, and we, yet we don't really know the full impact of COVID on those challenging children moving forward. Certainly schools are having to play the, the tune that Ofsted, and the tune that Ofsted plays is reverting back to actually, we should be getting back to normal. We're, we're through COVID, progress, attainment, achievement should be where it should be. And that's quite a difficult place for schools to be given that, you know, the the prior focus is more about social, emotional, well-being, getting the children settled and then start to stabilise and then to move on with their education. I think moving forward and on other things, you know, schools are facing challenges in relation to budgets. We have no long term plan without, you know, we have, we can budget three years in advance. It'd be lovely if we had a 10 year plan with a 10 year budget so we can actually make some life change and changes. Um, We're not in that position.
0: So for the people who are attending today, these will be people with a special interest in children from traumatised backgrounds. Um, What were you advising them about what they could do to help schools?
1: Well, I think, I think one of the strongest things from all of our talk is about trying to form a positive relationship with the school. Um, I think it's trying to be aware that schools are in difficulties as much as the, as the schools are aware and that as a parent with a child with trauma, they need a different provision. But it's about working together. It's about being open and honest. It's about building a relationship for the best interest of that child. And if we can get schools and we can get parents working closer together, it's not going to overcome the problems about underfunding, not having the knowledge, but it is going to actually start to make some lifelong changes for some children in the short term until eventually we might get to a position where we might get the DfE catching up to what these children need long term and actually drive it through, you know, as schools, you need to make these changes rather than you should be just working with parents in a, in a sort of a collaborative way without actually that being dictated to schools.
0: Any specific advice you gave to parents about the steps they could take?
1: Very much about finding the right school. Uh, Tips and advice about being careful about schools that are over-focused on academic approach, trying to find out a school that is moving towards a behaviour, understand the behaviour as communication rather than manage the behaviour. So it was trying to give delegates opportunities and tips as to what a good school looks like what they should be looking for, how they can delve deeper in order to find a good school to give their child a chance, given the level of needs that their child has.
0: And what does a good school look like for the kinds of people that were listening to you today?
1: What a good school looks like is not over-focused on academic performance. A school that has a relationships policy rather than a behaviour management policy. A school that offers a, a, a creative, diverse, more flexible provision. And a school that really listens to parents and sees that parents are really, really crucial. They want to work shoulder to shoulder and do the very best they can in partnership with the parent for the benefit of the child.
0: And thanks to Daniel with his explanation of what a good school looks like to a therapeutic parent. The COECT's Sarah Penner is also a director of Wixelm House, which is a school of special interest to therapeutic parents. Sarah gave some more detail on the alternatives to mainstream schools available for those who need it. But first, a little bit about Wixelm House.
2: So, Wixelm House is a, a learning centre, it's a community interest company, and we're based in South Gloucestershire. The house is set in 15 acres of land and we have a lot of livestock there. And the the ethos is very nurturing and we we aim for the children to flourish there as much as they can.
0: You were speaking about the alternatives to, to
2: mainstream schooling. So can we start then by talking about what those alternatives might be? There's quite a few out there. So you have the alternative education provisions, which most local authorities have a list of their recommended provisions a Wixham House Learning Centre is is on that list in um, Gloucestershire also there's private tuition so explore learning is quite a big concern in uh, nationwide they do maths and English tutoring so some of our um, children go there and also other private tuition and kind of enrichment activities that might be beneficial to those children who who find school difficult or it's not the right fit for them.
0: So you presented sort of a a number of plans on one of the slides. Do you want to talk us through them? Because they're they're quite kind of, there's quite a forest of acronyms there for people to have to get to grips with.
2: So if you have a child who, you know, for some reason school hasn't worked out for them and, you know, it's it's not an option anymore. Some parents decide to electively home educate. With that, there's there's no funding because parents take on that responsibility for their education. And there is something called EOTAS, Education Otherwise Than At School. Which is available for children who have education healthcare plans, and that is a package that children can use, parents can use for their children, so that they're able to access those alternative provisions, so they can have education other than at school. So, this educational he- healthcare plan, how, how do you, as a parent, start to access it? Yeah, so so every local authority has a family information directory and they are very helpful because they lay out exactly what you can access most parents if they've got a child who is in school then they will go through a a my plan to start with to assess those needs and then they go on to a my plan plus which if you know those needs haven't been met then they will put in targets and support for them and then if there is no change then they will go to the EHCP, which. Goes for additional support, and it's that point that then they can access funding for that child. So, in some circumstances, that might be a one to one for the child, or it might be additional resources that they might need. But that package then can be used if they find that school isn't working for them and they can take that elsewhere.
0: When you enter into this process of applying for sort of additional plans, can you expect it to run smoothly?
2: Sometimes. I think it's the professionals you have involved. Your parents can apply for an EHCP themselves. And if, if you are a, attached to a school and you know they're in that system already, then the SENCO will be able to support them through that. So it should be a seamless process. And SENCO stands for? Um, Special Educational Needs Coordinator. So they are the person that the parents would go to in the school to support that child's additional needs.
0: And you, in the position that you're in, how do you hear back from parents about their, or even indeed your own experience, about how smoothly it all ran?
2: Um, it's mixed opinions, to be honest. Depending on where they've come from, some, some parents have come through the home education kind of route, some parents come straight from school. Um, through weeks, we have quite a positive response that the school is working with parents to help the child meet their needs within our alternative provision. And what about
0: reconnecting with the mainstream if at some point along the road you decide, okay, the kid is now ready to go back to a mainstream school? How easy is
2: that? With Wixam House, we do do flexi-schooling. So It depends on the school that they're connected with, whether um, that is feasible, but the majority of schools that we work with, their main aim is for them to have some therapeutic time out with us in an alternative education provision with the view that they would be going back into school to the point where we have some of their staff coming out and spending days with them and watching our staff who are all DDP trained work with the children so that they can take those strategies back into to their own school if they need to
0: so the whole process then of reconnecting with the mainstream it's not out of the question it is definitely a practice
2: yes definitely and and I I think for most children that education within the school and as as we spoke in the our, our talk schools are changing to meet that need of the child so um we would like them to be back in school if they can. For some children, that's not possible. But for others, it is the main aim, especially at Wixam House, to to transition them back in if, if it's appropriate for that child's needs.
0: Jane Mitchell, a stalwart of the COECT, conducted a fascinating discussion with help from kinship carer Ian Fogg on the unique challenges people like Ian and also special guardians face. There's...
3: An unspoken kind of presumption, really, that because you're moving a child within the family or to somebody that knows them well or quite well, that there won't be the same issues that arise when you move them into foster care or adoptive care, which, of course, is very far from the truth. We have to remember that a child from trauma is a child from trauma, no matter where we're moving them to. And that those parents and that child, the the new parents, the re-parents, I was calling them this morning, and the child, will have the same, they will need the same level of care from us as an adopter or as a foster carer. How would you have defined other challenges then for kinship carers and special guardians? So kinship carers and special guardians face additional challenges because very often, they are looking after a child that belongs to a relative. So it may be that they are a grandparent, or it may be that they are an aunt, an uncle, or even an older sibling. And that really disrupts the normal family dynamic and makes it very, very hard for all concerned. And some of the specific challenges that might arise might be um, when, for example, the birth parent of the child is very controlling about what they will and won't allow that child to do, um, and when it's hard to meet, to reach an agreement about those things. And another thing that can cause huge conflict is, of course, if the, um, the re-parent, the new parent, is asked to supervise uh, family time. So that it, effectively what that means is that the child is going to see their birth parent, who is also a relative of the re-parent, and the reparent, the new parent, has to report back on the interaction between the birth parent and the child. And of course, they have to be very objective about that. However, that can feel like a huge betrayal for the person that is the birth parent. So it changes the dynamic of the family in very very many ways and can be really really hard for all concerned
0: what about the legal issues involved for these types of carers
3: it's very tricky because um they they don't have sometimes they have parental responsibility and sometimes they don't have parental responsibility it's a bit of a minefield and a nightmare sometimes um if the child's been in a foster home, say, for a day and a night or longer. They might be classed as a looked after child, but then in some areas that might not happen. So in some cases, they might get full support, such as you might get if you were an adopter, and in other places, you won't. It doesn't make any kind of sense. Um, And what we heard from the professionals today was that it's very, very difficult because there's lots of barriers in the way, to making sure that that there is equity and parity when it comes to financial arrangements, for example. Um, and that means that there are always these additional challenges that have to be faced because people are giving up or reducing their workload, so their income is being reduced and they're not necessarily being offered any kind of remuneration to help offset that. And what about the child's voice in all this? We were trying to be very clear today that actually the child's voice is is a powerful weapon it is you know enshrined in law that we listen to what the child has to say It's 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 within the u n Convention of the rights of the child it's absolutely enshrined in law but the problem is is that that voice cannot just be reported by the new parent by the reparent um because that would be a biased view you see so The voice has to be captured by a professional. So it has to be captured by a social worker or something like that. What I was advocating today was that parents look at the right of the child to have a child advocate, which you can find under gov.uk, Advocates for Children. And um, it explains the right of the child to have an independent advocate that can get to know them. It's a big job. The advocate gets to know the child Built a relationship with them and captures their view and represents that at the important meetings.
0: Ian had more detail as well as his own perspective to add.
4: So there were probably two aspects to this, I think. First of all, I think it was clear that people who are in kinship or SGO arrangements, many of them feel that it's an exceptionally difficult position that, that they're placed into by the system that, that's there around them, uh, so so that that really stood out. people talking about just how how much it's adversely affected their families, um, where they're maybe looking after their child's child um, and and actually it it's really been tough for them. The other aspect was actually the professionals that for many professionals, they were also talking about how hard the system is that they're working in and how it doesn't allow them to actually give the kind of care and support to the families and the children that's actually needed. And it just feels such a shame that almost everyone's trying to find a way through a system. But of course, nobody who was in the room today has got the power to actually make those kind of systemic changes.
0: There was one sort of quite strange comment, I thought, where um, a kinship carer said that he had been instructed that he should blame the social worker for yeah. communication problems. And that was a social worker giving him that advice. Is is that commonplace, do you think, that, that, that conflicting advice is given?
4: Um, so I, I can only speak from my experience, of course. Yeah. But um, cer- certainly while I understand what that social worker will have been trying to do, to take the pressure off the parent, of course, that kind of advice inevitably causes the child to have a lack of trust in social workers. And and what, really what we need is for the children to trust their new parents, to trust the system that is there around them. And so I, I would be really keen to find better ways of doing it than just having a sort of a scapegoat figure that can actually make things harder, especially when that child... Starts hitting teenage years. He's a lot more opinionated, thinking about their rights and who's for them. I think I think that that could make it really tough for them.
0: Now, you you yourself are a kinship carer, although yeah. you've you've told us before that there was quite a tenuous link yeah. to to the whole situation, to the whole relationship. But nevertheless, you've been in that position, and you were able to stand up today to give advice on how people can access funds or the different routes in. Can you just give us a précis of that?
4: Sure. Part of what I found out today was that the system in our, our local area is not the same as every other system. So in our area, um, payments and support that are there for kinship carers is noticeably less than what it would be for mainstream carers. And so for, for us, that, that meant that after we accounted for part of what Jane talked about, of both of us reducing our salaries, actually, um, to then be on a lower level of payment from the local authority, despite working with a really high level of need, um, f- felt wrong. It, it, it almost felt like a, a money saving gesture. And so for us, we actually approached the council and asked to go on the same banding level, um, the same funding level that was being offered to mainstream carers. Because for us, we felt that effectively we were doing a mainstream care kind of role. And, and for, for us, of course, going into it without any kind of family connection, really, it was the same kind of start as mainstream carers get, except that she moved in and we'd had no training and we were with a team that was used to supporting families rather than brand new relationships, which ours effectively was.
0: And it was experiences like Ian's, as well as the input you've already heard from both Jane and Ian, that attendees like Kay found so helpful.
5: Some of the information shared by the social workers in the room has just made me be like, really? In the respect that one of the things that was mentioned is that if you've, been a f- if you've got children that have been in foster care and then they move on to SGOs, you are then entitled to access the adoption fund... But if you've got a child that is straight into an SGO, then they're not eligible to access the adoption fund, which is mind-blowing, really, isn't it? So the children I care for have got siblings that went straight into an SGO. So the treatment through the system is completely different for them children, although they've experienced the same trauma. And I think the other thing is to be mindful as well to try and find out where the behaviour is coming from, rather than looking at it as negative.
0: In part three next week of our conference podcast special, we'll be hearing about the need for self-care, as well as havening techniques discussed at the conference. And there'll be a final word from Managing Director of the National Association of Therapeutic Parents, Rosie Jeffries. Bye for now.